Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again this morning. Thank you, music team, Stephen, Mike, for leading us so far so well uh, together before the Lord. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 for what is perhaps the last time in this series, Matthew chapter 13. And in preparation, I want to warn you that we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning and some, some meaty topics, but I'm confident you can handle it. Just to prepare yourself, we're going to be moving through the rest of this chapter at a pretty brisk pace, but unpacking some very important truths therein. So our task this morning, I want us first to begin by reminding ourselves of the method of Jesus' teaching, how he goes about teaching in this section of Matthew's Gospel. And then I want us to look at the mysteries. We've been talking a lot about mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is unveiling in the first century for the first time. We're going to see five of them this morning. And then finally, we will see a mission for us today, a mission that he gave to his disciples as kind of the spear point of this chapter and a mission that extends to us as well this morning. Now, if you've been following with this series for any amount of time, you are probably familiar with the reality that when Matthew writes this gospel account... He writes in such a way that he oscillates between stories about Jesus and then the teachings of Jesus. He goes back and forth between narrative and discourse, where he tells accounts of what happened to Jesus, and then he goes and talks about what Jesus told them or what he taught. The first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel, as we review, is the story about Jesus' birth and his preparation for ministry. And then chapters 5, 6, and 7 we saw is the Sermon on the Mount, where he sits down and he teaches principles of this kingdom that he has come to offer. And then in, verses, or in chapters 8 and 9, we find miracles, stories about miracles, where Jesus goes around proving, authenticating his claims, that he is who he claims to be, the Messiah, and can do what he's claiming or offering to do, bring about this messianic kingdom. And in chapter 10, it shifted back to teaching again. And this time it was Jesus teaching his disciples to go out and extend his declaration ministry. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he tells them how to go about doing this in chapter 10. And then we found just a number of weeks ago through chapters 11 and 12, he goes back again to story. And this time it's him butting up against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And this interaction between the two that culminates in them formally rejecting Jesus, saying, we don't believe you, we don't want you, get out of here. And he says, that is irreversible and unforgivable. And then as we've come to Matthew chapter 13, we are not surprisingly back into teaching. So he shifted again back into teaching. And this time there was something different that we noticed and something different that the disciples noticed as well. In fact, in chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, it says this. And the disciples came and said to him, that's Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so we saw this shift. He's been teaching several times, teaching clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, right? This is what the kingdom is like. Blessed are, blessed are. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this, very clear. And then in chapter 10, when he sends out the disciples that teaching, he says, this is what you must do. But then we come to chapter 13. It's these parables, these, these stories, these extended similes. 
And we saw from that text we just read and we've learned over the last number of weeks, he teaches in these parables, almost riddles, to do two things at the same time. To reveal new truths to those who believe and to conceal these new truths from those who do not believe. And in fact, in the text we're going to look at this morning, in the remainder of chapter 13, we find a similar statement. Look at verse 34. It says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. That is a great definition of biblical mystery right there. We've talked about it in the past, but a mystery is not in the Bible Sherlock Holmes trying to discover clues. A mystery in the New Testament is something that was previously unrevealed or unseen, obviously known in the mind of God, but has now been revealed. And that's what this is here. Things hidden since the foundation of the world. So through these parables, Jesus was uncovering these novel truths to those who believed, his disciples, while at once, at the same time, cutting off the information supply to those who were disbelieving. That's his method of teaching that he shifts to here in chapter 13. There have been several times in the last number of weeks as I've been studying these parables that I've just sat back in my chair and just thanked the Lord that he is a God who communicates, that he is a God who wants to be known by his people. Have we st ever stopped to think about that? He is the God of the universe and he wants to be known by his people and he goes to great lengths to make himself known. And then as we're seeing and reminded of in these parables, he actually gives us the ability by the power of his Holy Spirit to understand that same communication. As we believe in him, he illumines the text, he illumines our heart, he peels back those scales on our eyes to help us to understand. And we ask for that often when we come to the word of God. Lord, help me to understand. Not only are you a God who wants to be known, but you're a God who helps me to understand you. It's an incredible reality that we never want to become normalized in our lives, that the God of the universe wants to be known by us, by little old me. He wants me to know him. It's an incredible truth. And so Jesus here in Matthew chapter 13, he's employed this new method of teaching. We've seen this several times, but I wanted us to be reminded of that as we come afresh to this chapter again today. Now here we come to the meat of our text. And this is where we shift and look at the mysteries being revealed. Through these parables, he is again uncovering these novel truths that as we go through these, I'll warn you, a lot of us will hear them and say, yeah, of course, we know that. I've lived in the reality of those truths for all my life. And we might know that, but we need to understand and put ourselves in those first century sandals of these disciples and understand that to them, it was brand new. To them, it was never before seen. To us, some of these might be old news, but to them, it was paradigm shifting. And so really right now, I want to shift from how Jesus taught to what he was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the past weeks, we've unpacked the introductory parable, right, the parable of the sower, and then we've unpacked the first kingdom parable, which was the wheat and the tares, you may remember. And both of those are parables that Jesus told, and then he himself interpreted for his disciples in private. Okay, so those two he's actually interpreted for his disciples. But this morning, we're going to look at the remaining five kingdom parables and identify the mysteries revealed in each. Things about the kingdom of heaven that were previously, before this moment, unknown. So five parables, five mysteries, okay? So this is where we go. This is where it's going to get uh, fast, okay? Mystery number one, as we come to the first parable, starting in verse 31. Here's the first mystery that Jesus is revealing to his disciples. 
God's kingdom program includes times of apparent insignificance. Times where the kingdom will seem inconsequential and tiny and unimportant. God's great kingdom program will include times of apparent insignificance. Verse 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Again, put our first century sandals on. To us, we understand, okay, the kingdom will be great, but it doesn't always have to be that way. We've lived in that truth. We understand. But to the disciples, Israel, we need to understand that Israel expected at that time for Messiah to arrive, to conquer, to liberate, and set up an eternal, powerful kingdom, an outpost of God on earth. Powerful. That's what they expected. But Jesus here is teaching that while that power will indeed come, there will be times of seeming vulnerability and inconsequential natures of this kingdom. Times of weakness, almost, it will seem. See, a mustard tree, mighty and expansive, he's saying, home providing for birds. Birds that come and nest in this mustard tree. But it comes from a tiny little speck, a tiny little seed. And he's saying that in a similar way, the kingdom of heaven will be impressive. It will be far-reaching. It will be immovable and shelter-providing. It will be. But it's not right now. In fact, at that moment, at the moment Jesus is speaking, the kingdom of God's kingdom program is, it seems to reside in a pitiful and vulnerable kernel of a handful of unimpressive people. Right? We're talking fishermen, talking tax collectors, zealots. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God. This is it. We expected conquering. We expected power. And we've got this lot. This is silly. This is tiny. And yet we know that Jesus would later say, you 12 will sit on the 12 thrones, on 12 thrones presiding over the kingdom of Israel. So we know that in this kernel is all that is needed for the kingdom to come. But it is unimpressive at this moment. Jesus is kind of offering an encouraging ministry as they look around and say, this is not what we expected. You're our king. This is not what we had in mind. He's saying, I know, but let me tell you a secret, something that was never known before. This kingdom program is going to have times of apparent insignificance. It's not voiding what is to come. It is going to come, but right now, understand that it is seemingly tiny and ignorable. It will not always be. And we just say, isn't that just like our God? To use what is unassuming, to use what is broken and insignificant, insignificant to create something eternal and beautiful. Isn't that what the gospel it is? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. To or those who are perishing. You know, he uses, why did he choose Israel? Is it because they were a mighty nation? No, because they were least among the nations. That is God's MO. That's his modus operandi. He uses what is seemingly small and pitiful to bring forth that which is eternal and of most significance. Why? Because it brings him the most glory. That's what we see here. This kingdom program, it's going to have times of apparent insignificance. That's the first mystery. And again, not super surprising to us, but to them at the time, they're like, what is going on? We want power. We want liberty. Mystery number two. God's kingdom program will include expanding evil. Expanding evil almost seems the opposite, right? Look at verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Short little parable. 
Now, some argue that this is simply reiterating what was just said. The mustard seed is going to grow, the kingdom is going to expand and eventually be amazing, and just like that, the leaven, the kingdom is going to expand and eventually permeate the entire world. But I don't think that's actually what's being communicated here in this parable. In fact, I think that this short little one-verse parable reveals actually something tragic. It reveals something seen from God's point of view, that evil is going to spread through the world progressively until the kingdom comes. And the, the reason I get to that is because I want to ask the question, we want to ask the question, what would these disciples have heard when he said that parable? In the first century, what would they have heard? What would they have thought leaven was? Would they have thought that that was something good that was spreading through the world? Or would they have heard leaven and said, that's not a good thing. Leaven is not a good thing. Obviously, I think that it is the latter interpretation. They would have heard leaven and said, yee, we don't want leaven. We don't want leaven. That's a bad thing. And the same word is used in Matthew, and I'll just point this out, in Matthew chapter 16. Let, just take a, a little silent poll here in your minds. Is this being used in a good way or a bad way? Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 5, says this, And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Does that sound good? Or does that sound bad? Probably not great, right? Dropping down to verse 11, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? When they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I think it's pretty clear. We could probably all agree that in that case, leaven is not a good thing. That's the only other time leaven is used in the Gospel of Matthew. If we go through the rest of the New Testament, Mark chapter 8 records Jesus saying a similar thing. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. Well, Herod's, that's rarely a good thing either, right? The leaven of Herod can't be a great thing, so it's clearly bad there. Luke chapter 12, it says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Again, clearly not a good thing. Then we come to 1 Corinthians, actually. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to prove that this leaven is probably not being heard by them as a great thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to verses 6 through 8. This is Paul writing now, and he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Good thing or bad thing? Probably not a good thing, right? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, we'd say, clearly, leaven in the New Testament is being used as a bad thing, as an illustration for sin. And if you know much about the Old Testament and the feasts of Israel, you'll know that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a time when they got all leaven out of the house. Why? Because leaven represented sin that could permeate through the camp, permeate through their home. It's clearly not a good thing. We add to this that back in Matthew chapter 13, it's said that this kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman hides well, if the leaven is a good thing, why is it being hidden into the dough? No, that sounds evil as well. This is something being hidden almost like, if you think back now, to the parable he told about the wheat and the weeds, that the enemy goes by night, hidden in darkness, and hides evil, hides weeds among the wheat, right? To sow evil among the good. 
the same type of thing here. We're hidden. There's evil being hidden in the world. So this may be a little obvious at this point, but how we come to this parable of the leaven, Jesus is saying that this world, from God's point of view, is going to become progressively worse until the kingdom comes. Now I see that these two parables, they work back and forth. They work actually together. They're not saying the same thing, but they work together. The first one that we read today, the one of the mustard seed, it provides a mystery about God's kingdom program from a human point of view. If we look at the kingdom of God, we say, gosh, this does not look that great. I thought it was going to be, boom, kingdom. I thought it was going to be massive. And then it's, it's tiny. And, and from a human point of view, Jesus is saying, hang on, don't worry. There are going to be times of insignificance, apparently. That's okay. But in the second parable, the one of the leaven, it's like from God's point of view. When God looks at the kingdom program, he says, there's going to be evil. There's going to be, I see it. We might see from a human point of view, hey, we're doing pretty good. You know, the world's getting better maybe, but, but God says, no, no. From my point of view, I'm telling you right now, evil is permeating its way and it will continue until the whole lump is leavened. And then we know from other parables, then comes the harvest. Then comes the harvest. Once evil has reached its maximum saturation. This worsening of the world before the coming of Christ to establish his earthly kingdom is consistent with teachings elsewhere. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, it says, men will get progressively evil through this age. So we see that God's kingdom program will, it will include this expanding evil. Now, you might think, as we've talked through Matthew's gospel, why do we need to differentiate you know, between the kingdom and the church, the coming kingdom, is it here now, is it not? Does this really matter? What's the big deal? What's the practical implication? Why do I need to know this? Well, I think here we find kind of a practical application, why it is important. This is kind of where rubber meets the road. If we as a church, what I would say, misunderstand the purpose of the church, if we think our role is to be the kingdom of God, is to kingdomize this world, to make this world better, then when we run into the stark reality that it's actually getting worse, is that not going to be discouraging? When we go out there and say, our mission is to make this world, to set up kingdom outposts all over the place, and then a whole lifetime passes and we look around the world and say, wow, it's not getting any better. That's going to be discouraging. That's going to be deflating. Are we doing something wrong? Maybe we're, maybe we're not even saved. What? There are all sorts of questions come in. But if we understand our role rightly, that the kingdom has been pulled back, that the kingdom is not of this earth. It is yet coming, and our goal right now as a church is to make disciples of all nations, to take the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to the world, to snatch people from the flames, to make future kingdom inhabitants when we rightly understand, and we understand that in spite of all that, the world is going to get progressively worse, but God is in control. It may look insignificant now, but it will not always be. That gives us Encouragement, does it not? We need to rightly understand what we are here for and not confuse our mission, as we will see as we come to the end of our text today. So that's hidden mystery number two. Okay, the first one is this idea that there's apparent insignificance, and the second is that there is this expanding evil. Okay, the last three we'll go through a little bit quicker. Mystery number three. God's kingdom is Christ's hidden purchase. It's his hidden purchase. He's bought the kingdom, but it is hidden. Drop down to verse 44. Chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now think about this from first century Jewish ears, if we can. Hear this the way that they would have heard this. 
when David sat on his throne in Jerusalem, in the heyday of Israel, if you look back to 1 Samuel, Kings, David sitting on the throne, that was a time of relative peace, prosperity. Israel was just thriving in that time. It's almost like it was a treasure. That was God's kingdom on earth. It was a treasure. But then, and during that time, Israel is also told, but by the way, as good as this is right now, as great as the kingdom is, as, as prosperous as we are, as wonderful as David is, it's all looking forward to something even better. Second Samuel chapter 7. When a perfect kingdom will come, a perfect peace, a shalom, a perfect prosperity, a perfect king will sit on that throne one day. But then David died. And his son, Solomon, took the throne. And through his life, he was pulled away from Yahweh. And at the end of his life, by the end of his life, this great kingdom, it was divided, right? It was divided into north and south. And it would later be destroyed and captured and exiled. And so in many ways, that treasure, that kingdom was hidden. It was hidden in a field for a season. Beautiful, but unseen. Invaluable, but unpossessed. That is until David's predicted and promised successor with a capital S arrived and announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus coming. He is the man. He came and found the treasure and knew its worth and proclaimed and offered it. Here we go. Let's set up this kingdom. And he came. But then we saw in Matthew chapter 12 that he was rejected. He said, we don't want it. And so just like the parable says, he hid it again. He put it away. It was rejected. He hid it again, delaying its unveiling. And then the parable says that now he goes and he buys the field. And in verse 38, it says that the field is the world. So Jesus, this man, goes and, and he pays a great price for the field, a great price for the world. What, what on earth could that be? He goes to the cross. He pays for the sins of the whole world. He buys the world with his sacrificial death, that atonement. He goes and buys it all. It's Jesus' kingdom. It's his treasure. And right now, it is hidden. But the good news is that he bought the field, and when he's ready, he will with great joy reveal his ownership. This is the kingdom that is Christ's hidden purchase. Again, first century Israel, like, what is going on? We thought the kingdom was just going to come. Now you're saying it's this little thing, evil is going to expand, you own it, but it's hidden. These are mysteries to them. Mystery number four, God's kingdom program includes a unified purchase, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This sounds kind of similar to the previous parable. There's something expensive. The man is searching for it. He finds it. He pays an expensive price for it. But there is one emphasized distinction in that second in that second parable. It's the singularity and the uniqueness of this particular pearl. Did you notice that? There's this treasure in the first one. Now it's this one single pearl that he finds and he grabs and he pays a great price for. And I think that this is the first glimpse we have of Christ's one church, the church that's coming. Remember, Israel thought it's Israel and the kingdom is going to come. They had no concept. The Old Testament speaks nothing of the New Testament people of God, the church. But here I think we find this unified people of God predicted. This never before revealed entity growing during this parenthetical age. It's of incredible value, so much so that Christ gave his life to purchase his bride, right? his one church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. We have, there's one body, many parts. One body, one Lord, one baptism. We are united by Christ. 
The mystery of the body of Christ will continue to be clarified through the New Testament, but I think we find it predicted here. It's a, it's a unified purchase of a people of God that is included in God's kingdom program. Again, they don't fully understand all that that entails, but they see that there is this unified people of God going forward in God's kingdom program. Again, that will be explained as we go forward. Now, the fifth and final kingdom parable, it adds to that particular mystery, and it's this. God's kingdom is one of a diverse population. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. A dragnet is just a net strung between two boats, and they drag through and they collect the fish. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus predicted for the first time, he showed them there's going to be judgment, but it's going to be delayed, and it's the same thing here in this parable. They rejected the king, and so instead of judgment coming and the kingdom being set up, that's going to be delayed. And between these two advents of Christ, his first coming and his second coming, where wheat and weeds will be allowed to grow together, there will also be fish being able to swim together, good and bad fish. Now what's new in this final kingdom parable, and what would have been shocking to Jesus' disciples, is found at the end of the opening verse, in verse 47, where he says, and gathering fish of every kind. That's new. That's a mystery. See, during this surprise age, not only would good and evil be allowed to grow together, but people of every kind, Jew and Gentile, will be swimming side by side when the net sweeps through. When the kingdom does come, there will be good Jewish fish and good non-Jewish fish put into containers. God's kingdom is one of a diverse population. So there's the five kingdom parables. It's a whirlwind. Some of that you probably knew before. I, I took all that for granted. I kind of understood that. Some of it maybe you didn't quite understand about the kingdom, but hopefully that clarified some things. These are mysteries, that is new truths that Jesus parabolically taught about the kingdom of heaven. Now, while you and I might be familiar with some of them, uh, they were shockingly novel to these disciples in the first century. Paradigm shifting. They're shaking their heads. What on earth is going on? God's kingdom program is marked by times of apparent insignificance and expanding evil. It's a hidden purchase, but also a, a unified purchase, one of a diverse population. In 2017, Mark Zuckerberg, you may recognize that name, Facebook creator and CEO, he delivered the commencement speech at Harvard University. And in that speech, he implored the graduates to commit their lives to a grand purpose. That was his message. Commit your lives to a grand purpose. Something he went on to define as this. That sense that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. That we are needed. That we have something better ahead to work for. Great words. As Christians, though, we would say, yeah, no kidding. We have that in total. We have that completely. As Christ followers, we need to understand that we are indeed part of something bigger than ourselves, are we not? You hear these descriptions of the kingdom of God coming, and in spite of all the evil that it's coming, and I'm part of that, I am part of something bigger than myself. And I have something ahead to work for, something unstoppable, even though surrounded by evil and draped in seeming insignificance. And we need to understand as Christians, every single person in here is trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Every one of us, we are destined for something of incalculable worth. 
incalculable worth, supernaturally unified and purchased and owned by the God of the universe. What better purpose, what better grand purpose is there than that? These are incredible truths that we want to cling to even when we look around this world and say, it's falling apart. My life hurts, suffering is here. We look forward and say, there is a purpose promise. There is a grand story. There is this kingdom coming. And we say collectively, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring that kingdom to earth now. Stop the suffering. Bring that peace. Bring that prosperity. Bring it all. We need it desperately. So now, we've been reminded of his method. That he taught in parables. And, and we saw and unpacked the mysteries. And now, let's turn to the mission. Let's get really practical here. Now, that was a lot of theology, a lot of kingdom stuff. What do we do about it? What's the point? How do we apply this to our lives? Okay, what is the mission? You know, we, we're kind of moving from the how he taught to the what we taught to the why did he teach these things? What was the force behind this? What was he teaching his disciples? What was he longing for them to do? And what, by extension, is he longing for us to do as well? And this we find in the final parable of the chapter. I mentioned at the beginning of our study through Matthew 13 that there's eight parables, one introductory parable, one concluding parable, and six kingdom parables. We're at this concluding parable now, and it's in verses 51 and 52. I love this question of Jesus. Have you understood all these things? I like their answer even better. They said to him, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Have you understood these things? They answered, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. First thing I want us to notice there is that Jesus is subtly but clearly replacing the scribes of Israel with scribes of his own. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the scribes. The scribes were the keepers of the law. They taught the nation. They were experts in the Torah. And they hadn't really done their job when Jesus came on the scene and in, uh, in the first century. They rejected him. You know, they, they led the people to largely reject, wholesale reject the Messiah. And so Jesus says, okay, you are now going to be my scribes. To his disciples, these fishermen, these, these tax collectors, these nobodies, you are now going to be my scribes. And he likens them to heads of households who are going to go and showcase the treasures they have. The old ones, the ones they all knew, the ones that are dusty, the ones that no one even thinks of anymore because they're so old hat, and the new ones, like the ones they were just told through these parables. You're going to bring it all out and you're going to curate it. You're going to show it off for the world. You are going to be my scribes. You're going to be my teachers to this world. That was their mission. And we ask, okay, how were they to accomplish this scribal mission? Well, there's two verbs in these final two verses that outline their duties. Verse 51, they were to understand, and verse 52, they were to bring out. Those are the two verbs. They were to understand, they were to take in these teachings of Jesus, take them in, which they said, yes, we did, we understand. They were to take them in, and then they were to bring them out, and they are to show them off to the world, new and old. Everything, everything they know about the kingdom, everything they know about God's plan, bring it out and teach the people. Bring them in and then curate them for the others. That's their mission, a mission that will be fleshed out through the rest of Matthew's gospel. But you can think of Matthew chapter 13 as this, almost this spear point, and it's coming to this sending mission in this last parable. He's loading them up with information. He's loading them up with teaching, and then it comes down to now go. You are now my scribes. You are now my teachers. Go and show these things off to the world. And we need to understand that even for us today as Christians, this is our mission as well. We are 
scribes, quote unquote. We are scribes for Jesus, teachers of his truth to the world. And each one of us as a follower of Jesus Christ is a disciple of the kingdom of heaven to come. That's us. That's our identity. We are to be, to say it crassly, we are to be show-offs of God. All that we have of God, all that we know about him, we are to show those things off for the world. We are to take in the truth he's given us, understand it, and then bring it out to put it on display for other people to appreciate. And let's be honest, sometimes reject and throw in the trash, right? But we're not responsible for the response of the people. We are responsible for curating, to showing off these truths to the people around us. We are to be stewards of the treasures he's entrusted to us. And so as we close, I want to give us some suggestions on how we can grow to be faithful show-offs for Christ. How do we take all that we know, and some of us would say, well, I don't know much. We'll get to that. How do we, but we do know some things. How do we take what we know, what God has entrusted to us, and show it off to the people that God has put in our circles of influence? Three things. First, very simply, we need to know what we know. And we need to know what we don't know. Okay, this is a call just for a, a simple self-assessment. How am I in my knowledge of God? How am I? If I was to take a survey, where am I at in my knowledge of the Almighty? You're in good company if you say, I don't know everything. You're in good company. None of us knows everything about God. In fact, we will spend eternity exploring his infinite perfections. That's the beautiful thing about eternity is learning forever and never growing bored. But what do you know now? We're somewhere always below that perfect knowledge, right? Where are we? What do you know about your salvation, about your Lord and Savior, about his grace? What do you know about the cross, what happened there? What do you know about the empty tomb? What do you know about sanctification? What do you know about his church? What do you know about heaven, hell? What do you know about these things? I'm not asking for a show of hands, just a simple self-assessment. Where would you put yourself? And where would you put yourself? A scale of one to 10. Maybe when I started talking, it was maybe an eight, and now it's a four, five, three. It's kind of shrinking back. (laughs) Where are you? Just a self-assessment. Do I know enough? If you've been asked questions by people, why do you believe what you believe? Who is this Jesus that you talk about? What would you say? How would you describe him? Would you articulate your salvation as well as those two young men did from the tank last week, Jimmy and Rowan? They articulated what it meant, what their sin means, how that separates them from a holy God eternally, and how Jesus died for this, and do you know those things? So just an assessment. Know what you know and what you don't know. Now, the second step is to grow in what we know. Grow what you know. This is a call to just a simple plan of action. We are to be people who grow in our knowledge of God. Again, God wants to be known by us. The God of the universe wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to abide in him and to walk in intimacy with him. But that requires knowing something about him. No relationship that we have horizontally with other people grows in intimacy beyond our knowledge of that person, right? We always have to grow in our understanding of them, and then we grow in intimacy with them. It's the same with God. So what is your plan of attack? How are you growing in what you know? That can be simple. I mean, you have to be in the Word. Maybe you are in the Word a few times a week. Maybe there's Sunday school. Maybe it's something you're listening to online. Maybe it's a conversation that you're having with a friend or over breakfast with your spouse or whatever the case may be. I challenge you this week to think about, now that you have this self-assessment that's humbled you probably, me as well, you know, I don't know as much maybe as I, I want to know. What is your plan of attack? Do you have something every week, every day even, that is intentionally put in place so that you can grow in what you know. It's very hard to curate and to show off the things that God has given us to show off if we don't know that they're in the basement to bring out. We gotta know that they're there. So how are we growing in those things? 
And then finally, the pinnacle of this. How do we become show-offs for Christ? We know what we know, we grow in what we know, and then we show what we know. So do you have something in place every week, every day, where I am intentionally growing in my understanding of who the Lord is and what he's done and who I am? And then in addition to that, do I have an intentional relationship or relationships in my life where I am pouring out? You say, I'm not equipped for that. I got nothing to pour out. You're wrong. I'm going to rebuke you right there. If that is your reaction, you're wrong. You do have something to pour out. You do have a way to encourage other people, to show off the treasures. I mean, salvation itself is a treasure to be shown off, no? You talk about these old treasures we bring out, saved by grace through faith in Christ. How many times do we hear that? That's an old treasure, kind of dusty. No one gets excited by that anymore, right? No, we bring that every week and we celebrate. That is the hope of our salvation. It was paid in full on the cross, empty tomb. We bring it out every week. Why? Because it is spectacular. As old as that treasure is, you can always bring that out and talk about it. So ask yourself this week, are there ways? I don't want to be like the Dead Sea. Where there's, no, there's maybe some water flowing in, but there's nothing flowing out. You know, it's just stale water. It's stale water. Pride, uh, knowledge puffs up, right? We need to be... Putting, pushing it forward, showing it to other people. So I just encourage you, who's in your life that you are showing these truths to, these treasures to, these new treasures that you're learning? You know, as you grow in what you know, I got to tell you what I learned today. I got to tell you. And they'll say, they, they might say, yeah, I've known that forever. That doesn't matter. They can be reminded of that. You know what I learned today? God is, God is never changing. Isn't that incredible? Can't we talk about that? Isn't that incredible? That's just an incredible truth. Our, our salvation is based upon that. And you get excited about these treasures you bring out. Are you telling people about those things, the things that you're learning? It could be your kids, it could be your spouse, it could be a friend at school, a coworker, whatever the case may be. Who are the people that you are showing these things off to? So we need to know what we know as these disciples are saying, do you understand these things? They say, yes. They understand some things, right? And we understand some things. Do we know what we know? Do we grow in what we know? And do we show what we know? And we're being invited to participate in a mission here, in this text, to be Christ-honoring show-offs. And to do that, let's know what we know. Be honest with our self-assessment. Be intentional about growing in what we know, and then be very intentional in showing what we know to other people, to bring things out of the basement, to showing off old and new to the people around us. We are scribes for the King of Kings. And let's face it, our news, what we are bringing out of the basement, as little as you think it is, it is better news than anyone else has, period. Anyone else has, it is better news. So we need to bring those things out, bring them out old and new with the knowledge of what is to come. Let's pray together.